Hey guys, hope you're having a great 2014. Uh, looking back on 2013, there was a lot of great things that took place. Uh, there were some things that were not so great uh, that happened in 2013. A matter of fact, 2013 was proclaimed to be the year of the selfie. Uh, there's a lot of ways to not take a selfie. There's a lot of ways to take a selfie. Uh, we've got some professional selfie takers here at the team at Westridge Church. We're going to give you a few tips on how to take a good selfie. Come on. Hey, Ms. Trini, how are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. We're shooting a video to help the people take the perfect selfie. And I know we've got a few professionals. You are great. You've been doing this for a long time. Can you get your phone and just show us uh, your, your uh, method on taking the perfect selfie? Give us a few tips. Okay, well, I always look up, so I kind of hold the phone okay. so that I'm looking up right. like this, chin down, you know, head up, makes my eyes look bigger, and I hide the double chin. Oh. All right, you always want to look for a nice big mirror, preferably in a public restroom. Oh, bro, let me get in on this. Showing some tips, giving some tips to the people about some selfies. And you, my friend, have that stone GQ face that you do the selfie, the profile pic. Show the people real quick what, what you got. I see you. I like the scrub. All right. Just give it a bit, right? Oh, yeah. Mm. My daughters tell me that always to do the duck face when you do a selfie. So it's like this. The key to taking a great selfie is finding an exotic location where everyone wants to go. Hope we've been able to help you out. And remember one important thing, maybe the most important thing about taking a selfie, is just remember to smile. Someone shouted out in the first service, where is your selfie? And trust me, I cannot top that, okay? Those are just beyond words. But, well, if you look in uh, Greek mythology, there is a character by the name of Narcissus. And Narcissus was known for his beauty. There was also, during this time, a goddess by the name of Nemesis. Nemesis was a spirit of divine retribution for anyone who was arrogant. And one day she is noticing Narcissus and she draws him to a pool, a pool of water where he can notice his own reflection. And in staring upon his reflection, he falls in love with it. And he is unable to leave the beauty of his own reflection and he actually dies staring at himself. Now the English word that we get for narcissist, it, narcissist uh, is narcissism. And at the core of narcissism is an egotistical pre preoccupation with self or personal preferences or aspirations or needs or success or, or even how a person thinks they are perceived by others. That's the definition of narcissism, an egotistical preoccupation with Self. Now, when you hear that, you go, man, that just sounds really ugly. 
And yet I would say a good number of people, and maybe some of you in this room, I could tell you that maybe it's something even your pastor may struggle with from time to time. We all need a rescue from self. We all need a rescue from narcissism. We need a rescue from an egotistical preoccupation with self. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. Let's go with the bad news first. The bad news is we live in a, in a very narcissistic world that continues to feed our preoccupation with self. Gene Twinge, who is a leading psychologist and author on this topic, says that narcissism is actually up 30%, 30% over the last 30 years, especially in the age group of students. Think about it. A person can get on Facebook and they can fool themselves into thinking that they actually have hundreds or even thousands of friends, and they can choose to only show flattering pictures of themselves. They can speak in clever, short, pithy posts, and they can connect to, to movie stars. They can personally connect to pro athletes and even famous musicians. They can actually sit behind their keyboard and fire off bold comments, courageous things that they would never actually say to someone if they were in their personal presence. And then we think about all of the posts that we put, we, we put on Facebook and vacations as if all of a sudden our life has become one continuous adventure after the next. And I'm coming to the conclusion that in our minds, we don't actually believe an event took place or that it wasn't important unless we're able to post it on social media. Then you think about Twitter. Twitter has kind of become, you know, replacing Facebook in popularity. But on Twitter, people can actually pretend that they're worth following because they're able to post very smart or very funny posts. There's actually companies out there that can help people get thousands of unknown followers to, some, to, to follow someone's Twitter account to make that person feel more important. And so people, when it comes to Twitter, they become obsessed with how many retweets they can get from a post, or we become obsessed with who follows us or even who unfollows us. And then over the last few years, we have seen the, the rise of something called Instagram. Instagram is a place where we get to post our pictures, but we only post the best pictures that we want people to see. We can actually now take selfies and we can crop them and touch them up so that we actually look better than we really do. I know none of you in here would ever do anything like that. But we can make our lives, we can make our lives and our daily experiences look so much better than they actually are. And here in the Instagram world is where we have developed our, our obsession with the word like. How many people like my post? How many people like my selfie? Matter of fact, as Stevie mentioned a moment ago, Oxford Dictionary has just recently named the word selfie the word of the year for 2013. Well, to keep up with all that's going on in the world of technology, we now hand out trophies and ribbons to losing teams because we're so afraid that someone's going to feel bad about themselves. Or we hear of school systems that are inflating their grades to make everyone look better than they actually are. We have our favorite athletes who are so obsessed with success and rewards and, and, and even records that they will now knowingly inject themselves with performance-enhancing drugs even though they see the fallout. They see what happens to someone who is revealed in the world of the media. And you say, why do they do that? Because we have become a society that is absolutely obsessed. We've become this society 
that has an egotistical preoccupation with self. How do I look? Who accepts me? Who unfollows me? Who friends me? Who hits my like button when I put a picture out there? And while I believe that all of this technology was created to help us connect more personally, what it has done, it has created a world of false connection. A place where we can escape into a world of fantasy and where we can build up false pride. And quite honestly, I believe it's part of the reason why today we feel more distracted, more empty, to si- more empty inside, and more depressed than we've ever felt before. Now that's the bad news. That's the bad news. The good news is that God sent Jesus Christ to earth to rescue us from our egotistical preoccupation with ourselves. Our obsession with self, listen, it's not a new concept. It's been going on since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. We see it in politics. We see it in pop culture. We see it throughout the pages of history. And we see it throughout the pages of the Bible from the Old Testament all the way through the New Matter of fact, it is human nature to be preoccupied by self. Now, I know for some of you this may seem hard to believe, but this was a huge issue with Jesus' very own disciples, the men that walked most closely with him throughout his ministry on earth. And as we get into the last days of Jesus' life here on earth, we see several incidences where the disciples are bickering. They're arguing with each other about who amongst them was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. Who did Jesus regard as the greatest amongst the 12 of them? Who would sit closest to Jesus? Who would have an opportunity to sit at the head table? One of these little incidents happens in the book of Matthew. Matter of fact, there's a few little incidents like this throughout the Gospels. But we see it happen a couple times in Matthew. And at the end of chapter 17, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. We read that Jesus is explaining to his disciples. Guys, here's the deal. I'm about to be arrested. All right? And then I'm going to be killed and I'm going, to be, I'm going to raise up from the dead in three days. Then he performs a little miracle in front of them involving a fish and a coin to prove to them that he was the one that had come to fill, fulfill the, the law of the Old Testament. So how do they respond to that? Well, in the very first verse after this whole story has been told, after he does the miracle, listen to what they say. At the time the disciples come to Jesus and saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus' response is epic. It says, In calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to explain what Jesus says to these guys in just a moment, but I want to show you another moment like this because I think it it helps put their behavior into perspective even a little bit more. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the disciples for the third time, tells them for the third time that he's going to die, but he actually goes into a little bit more detail. He says, guys, here's the deal. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and handed over to the scribes and Pharisees. They're going to turn me over to the Romans who are going to beat me to the point of death. And then I'm going to face the worst death possible. I'm going to be crucified, but I'll be raised on the third day. And in the very next verse, after Jesus says all this to them, we find out that the nut doesn't fall very far from the tree because we see the mother of James and John, 
okay, who's Jesus' aunt Salome. She's coming to Jesus with her two boys, James and John, Jesus' cousins. And she asked Jesus if her two boys could sit at the right and the left of him, of Jesus, in his kingdom. Could they have the most prominent seats by the throne? Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, James and John are responding to their sinful human nature. After a moment where Jesus has just bore their soul to them, they're completely preoccupied with self. And their mama? She's the one feeding this sense of entitlement. She's right there in front of Jesus, arms around them, fighting on behalf of their boys to be first string. How often do we see the same kind of scenario played out in our current culture? I mean, it's like the dad who schedules a meeting with the head coach because he is convinced that his son should be the starting whatever on the first string varsity. Or it's like the mom who loses her mind and her reputation when her daughter doesn't make the cheerleading squad. Or it's the parents who put their family into serious debt and even sometimes sacrifice their marriage so that their son or daughter can somehow live out their dreams for them to be a Division I athlete. And over time, here's what happens. Our children, instead of becoming part of the family, they end up being the center of the family. And what's the result of all of this? Well, I have watched it take place over the, over the last many years, and quite honestly, Amy and I, we have wrestled through some of this, all right? We end up sacrificing some of the things that are the most important thing in life, and we end up raising a generation of performance-driven, self-centered narcissists who crash and burn when they run into the first major crisis that shows them that life is not all about them. That's amazing that while the times and cultures have changed throughout the years, the human nature has not. It's still consumed with self. It still wants to be first. It's still obsessed with significance and even recognition. And what we need more than ever before is we need a rescue. We need a rescue. We need someone to save us from this preoccupation with self that does nothing more than lead us further down a road of emptiness and distraction. Well, I have good news. Jesus came to provide the rescue that we need from self. And he tells his disciples that they're going to need, their, they're going to, need to change their thinking if they're going to be part of his rescue mission because a rescue from self requires true life change. In response to their self-serving question, who's the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus does something that totally catches the disciples off guard. As they're talking, he calls for this little child to come over and he places the little child right in the middle of the conversation. And he says to them, guys, listen, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you need to turn from a dependence on self. Jesus' whole point in bringing this child into the circle was to say, guys, if you're going to be usable in seeing the kingdom of heaven come to earth and expand, you need to be like this child. Now, why was this so significant? Why would it it have caught the disciples off guard? Well, back then, children, they were never the center of the family. Actually, they had absolutely no rights. They were considered nobodies in society. A child was completely dependent on his parents for everything. And Jesus is using this child to make that point to his followers. Guys, you need to have the attitude of this child. But in order to get there, you need to repent. 
Now, what's repent? Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. And the disciples were going to have to have not only a change of heart, but also a change of mind to recognize how completely bankrupt they actually were and how much they were going to need to depend upon Jesus for everything, for every bit of power, every bit of ability, if they were going to be usable to him in, his, in the future. Now, listen, I want to tell you this. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve success. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do great things in life. But if it's all about self, if it's only about self, it's like feeding a beast that can never be satisfied. But the disciples had greatness in God's eyes. They had it all wrong. Again, our human nature and the culture that we live in says that greatness and significance is found within ourselves and our own human efforts. Now, take your Bibles, go back to Matthew 16 for a moment, because this conversation was all part of the whole conversation through the end of the the book of Matthew. Jesus is talking to his disciples again, and in verse 24, it says he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. In other words, die to self-will and take up his cross. In other words, embrace God's will no matter what the cost and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, true significance, true success, self-worth, self-esteem, self-importance is not found in self-promotion. It's not found in self-gratification. It's not found in self-glorification. It's found in denying self. It's found in embracing God's will and finding our significance in a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we do that when it seems to go against everything that we feel inside, everything that you see in a culture that is obsessed with promoting self? Well, Jesus says you have to become like a child. In other words, you need to depend on Jesus in such a way that you realize that he is the source of all your power, all your ability, but you also have to have the faith of a child. Now, children, for those of us who have had children, they are incredibly trusting, aren't they? until we let them down or until something happens that scares them. I remember when Taylor was, was, was two years old, we had, we had moved here uh, in the summer of 1997 to, be, to begin the process of starting Westridge Church, and Taylor was two years old, and we lived in an apartment in Lithia Springs, and our apartment overlooked the pool, which was kind of nice because we both loved to swim. So I would grab him, and we would go down, and every once in a while he would actually let me put the swimmies on his arms, okay? He was Mr. Independent Guy. And we would play this little game. He would place himself against the back, against the fence, okay, that surrounded the pool, and he would go, okay, Dad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to run, and you catch me, all right? His big word was, the way he said watch, he would say, watch this, Dad, watch this, Dad. And he would take off running as fast as he can. He'd hit, he'd hit the side of the pool, and then he would dive into my arms, and I would catch him. And then he would go, Dad, move back, move back. And then I would move back some more. And then he would take off. He would put his little self against the fence. And he would take off running as fast as he could. And he would jump in my arms. And then he would go, Dad, back, back, back. Until the point where, I mean, I could hardly reach him. But he would be like almost flying through there horizontal. Then he knew. He knew he could keep doing that because he knew at the end of the day, I was going to catch him. He had faith that his dad was going to catch him. Listen, if we're ever going to be rescued from self, we have to have a simple childlike faith that believes that our father is going to catch us no matter what. That he cares for us no matter what. He's going to take care of us. Everything we need to feel self-worth, everything that we need to feel significance is found in our relationship with Jesus. It's found in our dependence on Jesus Christ as our heavenly father. 
Now, anytime I use the word father in a sermon, I'm always reminded that some of you in this room, you've been let down by a father or you've been abandoned by a father. So when we talk about a heavenly father trusting in a father, for some of you, it's very difficult. Therefore, at times, you may feel the need to find validation, to find significance in other places like an unhealthy relationship or a destructive habit or even an unhealthy connection to social media. Listen, I want to tell you something. God is a father that you can depend on because he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. This is a father that you can be vulnerable with who actually tells us to take all of our cares and cast them on him because he cares about us. And so we have to have the faith of a child. Then we need to develop a right biblical view of self. Now, if you look in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I think what you see is two of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. And here's what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. It says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also, so, so you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In other words, in Christ, you are complete. That means that nothing is lacking in your lives. Everything that I need, everything that you need, all right, to feel complete in this lifetime, we find in Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took our narcissistic, egotistical preoccupation with self and he put it to death. We've been set free from the need to promote ourselves or even to validate ourselves. We've been set free from our obsession with significance. It's like when we, listen, when Jesus, when God sent Jesus to die for us, it was like God pushed the like button and said, my very own son is worth your life. And here's what I find. Here's what I find. When I try to promote myself or when I try to validate myself or I even try to find my significance outside of Christ, I find myself running right back into the slavery that Jesus came to set me free from. I find myself in bondage. But listen, God's grace, which was expressed through his love for us by giving us his son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, is the same grace that wants to rescue you from yourself today. And here's what we need to do. We need to learn to rest and relax and find our peace in his grace. So, how does God actually define greatness in his kingdom? How does God, when he looks at us and we're trying to be great, how does he define greatness? Well, look at verse 4 talking to his disciples. There's a child standing right in the middle. It says, whoever, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There it is. God doesn't define greatness by who, whoever's the smartest, whoever's the strongest, or, or whoever has the most ability, or whoever is the best leader, or whoever has the most influence or popularity, or even who has the biggest following on social media. In God's economy, greatness is marked by humility. Now you think about that and you go, that doesn't even make sense. Well, listen to what the Bible says about humility in Philippians 2. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, cons- more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so if I'm going to have humility in my life, and here's what I have to do. Paul says, you have to first of all say no to selfish ambition. In other words, what's in this for me? Now, saying no to selfish ambition is a tough one because, again, we've been conditioned to be ambitious. 
And again, there's nothing wrong with ambition. What Paul is talking about here, he's talking about selfish ambition. It's the attitude that says, this is all about me. This is all about me getting what is rightfully mine. It's all about self. It's the attitude that a lot of couples go into when they get married. As a matter of fact, it's what a lot of couples struggle with in their first few years of marriage. I mean, so many couples go into this marriage with this, with this what's in this for me attitude without ever saying it. I have needs, and I'm getting married, and I'm going to have my needs met. And at the altar, I will stand with a couple, and they will make the, the most incredible, humble, beautiful, unselfish promises to a new husband or to a new wife. But they're, what they're really thinking is, what's in this for me? And guess what? We have found out, all of us who are married, that that never works. Never. So, we have to say no to selfish ambition, but we also have to say no to conceit. In other words, who's noticing me? It's what we talked about earlier with social media. It's the Hollywood mentality. Who's looking at me? Who's noticing me? Who's showing me attention? How many likes do I have on my selfie? How many retweets do I have? This mentality is called, mentality is called conceit. And Paul says, say no to selfish ambition. Say no to conceit. But say yes to putting the needs of others in front of your own. Paul says humility is considering the needs of others over your own. It's seeing others as more important than yourself. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding out there when it comes to humility. But I think this verse really helps to explain it. What is humility? Humility is not considering yourself less important. To put yourself down is not humility. To develop a martyr's complex, that's not humility. Matter of fact, that just leads to false pride. Humility is not considering others somewhat important. Sometimes we think, wow, I've actually reached the point where I'm actually starting to notice that other people exist. That's not humility. Or that other people actually have feelings. I must be really getting humble. No, that's not either. Humility is considering others more important. Humility is putting your, it's not putting yourself down. It's actually lifting God up. It's lifting others up. It's getting to the place in your life where the needs of others are more important than your own. Now, listen, I, I know that that's upside down thinking, but that's how God defines greatness, humility. How is it expressed? It's expressed in service to others. You go back or forward to a moment in Matthew 20, again, to this conversation that Jesus is having with his aunt Salome and his two cousins, James and John. And after Jesus' aunt tries to work out a deal for her sons to have a seat of honor at Jesus, in Jesus' kingdom, I want you to see what happens next. Because we get into verse 24, and we find out that the other 10 disciples who are listening in on this conversation, the Bible says they were indignant. In other words, they are angry. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the world's idea of greatness is that you have this great leader on top of a flowchart or a pyramid, and he's passing down orders and he's telling everyone else what to do and making sure that they do it so in some cases at the end of the day he can make himself look good. I mean, that's the goal is to be on the top of the flowchart. However, when you look at what Jesus is talking about here, when you look at the example that he left us, the pyramid is flipped upside down. Jesus chose to put himself 
on the bottom and to become a servant to everyone else. He put our needs above his own. And that's what Jesus is telling his, his followers. He's saying, listen, guys, if this church is ever going to get off the ground, if the kingdom is ever, ever going to be expanded, if we're going to truly spread the message of the gospel, then you need to understand that true greatness is found when you can humbly serve others, when you can put the needs of others over your own. Now listen, think about this. I mean, these, di- these disciples must have been thinking at the moment. I mean, okay, let me, let me understand what you just said here, Jesus. First of all, in order to be used by God to advance the kingdom, we have to make ourselves like this child. Right, someone who has no rights, who's totally dependent on someone else for everything in their life. I mean, is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And, just so we have it really clear here, you're also saying in order to be great, you have to put the needs of others and everyone else over your own. You don't, you don't live your life to, serve, to be served. You actually live your life to serve others. Is that it? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm sure these disciples are probably thinking, that doesn't even make any sense. That is probably totally backwards from everything that they had probably ever seen of or heard of. But that was the example that Jesus modeled. He humbled himself and gave his life to serve others. And I find it very interesting when I look at throughout the scriptures of who Jesus focused on, who he actually served. We see him with little children. We see him with the widow. We see him with the outcasts of society. We see him with people with diseases, with the poor, people with severe issues, the biggest sinners in town the dirtiest, the most unpleasant, the most overlooked, and the most unwanted. That's who Jesus focused his attention on. And he said, you want to be great? Humbly follow my example. And then don't go around bragging to everyone of how great of a servant you are or how much you do for others. Don't, you know, pull someone in. Hey, come over here, homeless guy. Let's take a selfie together. I mean, and then don't look down your nose at those who don't embrace the latest justice program as much as you do because that would be called self-righteousness. And unfortunately, we have a lot of that in the Christian world as well. But fortunately, Jesus can rescue us from all of our issues with self. You say, how does he do that? When we come to a place in our lives where we turn from a dependence on self, we embrace a childlike faith and we embrace... the right biblical view of ourself, that we're complete in Jesus. And we need to follow Jesus' example of what it truly means to be great, humility by serving others. Now, this had to be such a hard word for the disciples to hear. I mean, these guys struggled with understanding what Jesus talked about, but, but you don't see Jesus ever get frustrating, frustrated with them, do you? Now, I want to be honest with you. After about a year with these guys, I think I'd have fired all of them. Okay? These guys are frustrating me no matter what I say. They don't get it. They think I'm here for another reason. They keep saying stupid things to me. And I, you know, they don't get the vision. They don't get the plan. They don't get the purpose of why I have come. I keep having the same conversation with them. But I want you to understand that he knew these guys. He handpicked them. He chose them personally to not only be his disciples, but to be his closest friends. He knew their struggles. But he also knew that one day, they're going to get it. It was going to make sense. It was going to click for them. He knew that one day the Holy Spirit was going to come on the scene after he was gone, and it was going to empower these guys to live beyond themselves. He knew that one day they would understand what it meant when he said back in John 15 that apart from him, they could do absolutely nothing. He handpicked these guys with 
all knowing all of their struggles, all of their quirks, he handpicked them to build his church and to expand his kingdom here on this earth. So you know what? That means God understands us. God understands us. He knows the struggles that we face with self, the insecurities that we have, the issues with self-worth, of trying to find significance in the wrong place. He, he understands us, and so here's what he's done. He's provided a rescue. He's given us all we need in Jesus. We are complete. We don't have to look outside of him for our self-worth because Jesus took all of our struggles to the cross so that we could walk in freedom in this life. He empowered us with the Holy Spirit to become the humble servants that he's called us to be. He'd never call us to do something so extreme without giving us the power to do it. And he's given us an unlimited supply of grace when we struggle. When we struggle with this need to be feel validated, this need to feel important, this need to feel, ins- to feel significant, Jesus has poured his grace upon us. And what we need to learn to do is just simply learn to rest and relax in his grace. And I know some of you, I mean, we, again, we live in this culture that's just constantly pulling us towards promoting self, finding our significance in something other than Christ. And there's so much stuff that's just being created almost every day to feed the beast. And God says, listen, through my son, Jesus, through my son, Jesus, and the death that he died for you and the blood that was shed for you, you are complete. Everything you need to feel important, everything you need to feel validated, everything you need to feel significant, you find it in Jesus. And we need to rest in that grace. We need to relax in that grace and enjoy what God is doing in our lives. The fact that we are complete in him, nothing more can be added. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Some of you may feel this afternoon, man, I I have just been so, Brian, I've been so consumed with myself and it's just, it's led me down a road of emptiness and discouragement, even to the point of depression. I'm so obsessed with significance and I'm so obsessed with trying to feel validated and it's tough. Sometimes I feel worthless. I want you to know that you were worth, you are worth the very life of God's son. And when Jesus died for you, it's like God, again, it's like he pushed the like button on you and said, you're complete. Not only do I love you, but I like you. And I know some of you are desperate for that this afternoon I want to offer you by God's grace through an opportunity through faith to receive forgiveness to receive restoration to receive an opportunity for things to be made right with God for you to have an opportunity for things to be made whole again so how do I do that I want you to pray with me say Lord Jesus right now by grace a grace that I don't deserve and through faith the best way I know how I put all of my faith and all of my trust in Jesus Christ to be my personal Savior. 
I repent of my sins. And then I change my mind, I change my heart. And I receive God's free gift of salvation and all that goes along with it. Thank you for sending Jesus to do something for me that I could never do on my own. And thank you that in Christ, I'm complete. With heads still bowed, I want you to do me a favor. Take out your Get Connected card. Give, your, give us your information. Check that box that says, this afternoon I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. Today I did that. And turn it in at the help center on the atrium because we want to we help you to know how to take your next step with Christ. But Lord, I want to thank you with our heads just bowed for a moment. I want to say thank you for the fact that not only did Jesus die for my sins, but he died to rescue me from myself. He died to rescue me from my fears. He died to rescue me from my guilt. He died to rescue me, Lord, just from every single thing that I wrestle with in this lifetime. And Lord, my prayer, not only for me, but for everyone sitting in this auditorium is that we will learn to rest and relax in that grace. I don't have to perform because Jesus has done it all for me. I don't have to be significant. Jesus was significant enough. I can rest because when you look down upon me, you don't see me with all of my flaws and my quirks and my struggles. What you see is Jesus and his righteousness wraps me up. I don't even have to strive to be perfect. I can't do it. perfect but became perfection on my behalf I could never do it on my own thank you for the blood Lord how beautiful the blood flow how beautiful your mercy shows and I thank you for that and we want to worship you now in Jesus name amen let's stand